What I really love about our worship team, and they're good, they're very good, man. Um, but what I really love about them more than anything is that they, they're like a good uh, Irish English setter that points you. Yeah, huh? Good English setter. And what do they do? They point to the bird, right? You don't sit there and look at the dog and go, wow, look at that dog. You shoot the bird, right? <laughs> That's what I love about our worship team. It's not about them. They know that. They, they're just part of a, a, a team that focuses us and points us to Jesus. It's always my aim in preaching, too. If I get in the way from you looking at Christ, I have not done my job. So, But I want to say thank you to the team. I'm looking at a few of them here, and so thank you. You, you, guys, you guys rock. There's something in us that loves an underdog. There's something about, I don't know what it is, and maybe it's the American spirit, I don't know, but I think it works worldwide too. We just love the underdog. We love rooting for the guy that's against all odds to see the little guy win it all. If you don't believe me, if you rented the movie Miracle, it's all about that, right? The mighty Russian Soviet team against these bunch of college students. Or the Mighty Ducks, you know, these kids who can't play hockey at all and they get together and then they win whatever they win, you know. <laughs> or think of Rocky, one or two or three or four or five. Five, there was a Rocky five. He got to the Roman numeral like that. That's amazing. But there's no dramatic movie that at least was anything at all entertaining ever made about the New York Yankees. Can I get an amen on that? Yes, we can. <laughs> Who cares if the Yankees win? They always win, right? I mean, it's... I know you're from New York, but... Uh, it, so what? Who cares? It's when the Twins come from last place to first place and win the World Series. And that's, that's amazing. And I think that's actually a thing designed in us by God. I really do. If you read the Bible, it's just full of it. Remember in, in, in Judges chapter 6, just 6 and 7, Gideon is going to face this massive army. It says in chapter 6 that now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and all other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in this big valley. There's just people everywhere. So Gideon gets this army together of 30,000 people, and God says, it's too many. It's too many. I'm thinking, what? There's like 100,000 out here. What, what are you thinking, God? He says, too many. Tell you what, gather them all together, he says. Gather all these people together, and the ones who are afraid, let them go. Well, who wouldn't be afraid? So all the 30,000, only 10,000 are left. They, you know, not, I don't know what, but they're not afraid. It's only 10,000 left. You know what God says? Too many. Too many. Take them down to the lake and let them have a drink. The ones that get on all fours and go like a dog, have them stay. I don't know, God's maybe got a little sense of humor or something. I mean, that's kind of an interesting way to, to take it down. But it goes significantly down. 10,000, you know, a, a Twins baseball, kind of a low attendance Twins baseball game, to 300. But not quite 300 here today. That's what it goes down to. God says, that's enough. 300 against this whole group of people. I mean, it is Mighty Ducks time. It is. There's no way. And it turns out they do this wild, wacky thing that the army just gets confused and kills himself anyway. It's just this crazy thing. God gets the glory in that. God loves that. That's what's happening right now in the book of Acts. We're studying the book of Acts right now. 
in a series called Church on Fire. And we've seen how it has went from downtown Jerusalem. Everything was going great. The church was growing. Uh, people were daily, daily, the church was growing. People were making decisions to be a follower of Jesus daily. They'd meet openly in the temple courts and they would share all their possessions. They would sit and get the apostles' teaching. Uh, they would do everything together. It says they have everything in common. It was a movement right there in Jerusalem. And then this guy by the name of Stephen came along, opened his mouth, told the authorities who this Christ was. And on the time and the, the climate was just right and major persecution broke out. They dragged Stephen off and they stoned him to death. And it says that, that major persecution broke out, and so much so that people had to flee the city of Jerusalem. They had to leave all their stuff behind. They had to run for dear life. They had to leave Jerusalem. And what did they do? This is it. Here it comes. It starts to rise out of the ashes right here. You can hear the music change in Acts 4.4. And Acts 8.4, excuse me. In Acts 8.4, it says, those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. I love Acts 4. That's a great verse. Wherever you go, what do you do? You just keep talking about the Lord. And that's the very reason they were persecuting him. So it's like, yeah, we're winning. We're winning. Acts 8.4 is where it changes from being a very safe environment to being a very dangerous environment to be a Christian. But you know what? These Christians are just bonsai in love with Jesus, and they don't care. And they just keep going. It just spreads everywhere, kind of like a, like a bad rash. And you scratch it, and it just keeps going everywhere. Today we're going to look at another one of these outcomes of this scattering out that happens. So if you want to open up your Bible to Acts chapter 8, or you can pull out that insert from the worship folder, watch the screen, or any other option you want to do, that's fine. You can just listen along if you want. We're going to look at Acts chapter 8. We're going to, kind of, we're going to start this in, in verse 26. I'm just going to walk you through what's going on here. At the end, we're going to kind of make some observations about, or we're going to make some observations and we're going to make some applications into our life about how this could apply to us. So we're just going to kind of go through this amazing story, amazing account of what happened in the early church, starting in verse 26. Remember, Philip is the one, previous to this, Philip is the one who had come from Jerusalem. He'd worked with some people in Samaria, uh, Simon and all these Samaritans. And we're picking up with Philip again. So here's Acts 8, 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes, down from, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So just stop there. This is the second time we've seen angels in the book of Acts. Does anyone remember the first time? I don't have a shiny dime today, but anyone remember the first time? After the ascension. They probably said it over there, but I didn't hear it. After the ascension. Very good. And it was great. What a great line, too. The angel. I, I think angels are wise guys, actually. I think they just, I mean, they got a lot of time on their hands. So they are, are, are thinking of wise things to say. So Jesus ascends up and, you know, Jesus, whoop, goes up to heaven. And the disciples are going like that. I mean, what else would you do if somebody just went, whoop, up into, up into the heavens? You, you would go like that. And the angel comes down and, and he says, men of Galilee, why, are you, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Because this guy just went, woof. You know, I, I don't know. I just... says, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. But I, you know, it's like, like that line, my favorite line at the tomb where Mary's there. And, and he doesn't, the angel doesn't say, Mary, he's risen from the dead. He doesn't say, he says, why do you look for the living among the dead? What a great line, huh? Probably took him a thousand years to think of that line. <laughs> Why 
why do you look for the living among the dead? Anyway, here he is. And he says to Philip, he says, go to that road. Go to the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. It's about a 50-mile road. We don't know exactly where he was, but he says, go there. Somewhere on that road, I want you to just go there. Philip has this touched by an angel experience, and he starts on that journey, wherever he was at, and he keeps going. Verse 27. He, so he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the tre uh, treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, so he was in Jerusalem, and on his way home, he was going home, he was sitting in a chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. So let's stop here a minute and let's just talk about who this guy is. He meets this guy. We're going to see specifically, the passage is going to tell us specifically how they meet and what that encounter happens. But let's look at who this guy is. This guy's an Ethiopian. Ethiopia was a, was a major, major country or region south of Egypt. And this guy was an important player there. It says he was an important official and he was in charge of all the treasury of Candace. Now, Candace wasn't her name. It was her title more, uh, like, kind of like saying Pharaoh. And she was top dog. In that culture, the females, huh? Rock on. No, females, that was this one, that was, she was the ruler. This guy was in charge of all her bling bling. <laughs> I just learned that phrase. I think it's kind of a cool <laughs> phrase. See, at 40, you can learn these phrases, and then when you say them, people laugh. <laughs> she was in, he was in charge of all her money. All her treasury was his, in his church. So this, just, just, you know, this guy was no slouch. I mean, he, he was not only, you know, probably smart in other ways, but he was obviously financially smart. And so this guy was a sharp cookie. Now, I have a little bit of a disappointment for you, because I've read this passage for years and years, and I love this passage. But the phrase eunuch there might not mean that he's a eunuch. I just did some research on this, and it could mean that just he was a government official. I don't know how those two exactly coincide, but eunuch would mean someone who was surgically, or I don't know how they did it in those days, but unable to have children. And you put them in charge often of things that people who are unable to have children should be around. You know, your, your wives or whatever, and you don't want someone who's attracted to them, so you made them a eunuch. I did some research on this, and it's likely, but it's not necessarily that the guy was a eunuch. It could just mean a government official. I hope that dis doesn't disappoint you. Anyway, we're not exactly sure, because I've heard a lot of people go off and off on how he was frustrated, and you know, no one liked him, and all that kind of deal. That, that may or may not be, be true. There are people who were married and had children who were called, called eunuchs. But we do know this for sure. This guy is an Ethiopian, so he's not from Israel proper, and yet he was a person who worshipped God in his own way. Now, an Ethiopian probably would not be let into the, the closest part of the temple just because of the, the, the rules regarding the temple. And especially if he was a eunuch, then there's no way eunuchs can, could not go in to the temple. But it says he was, we see two things here. First of all, we see that he was, he'd gone to Jerusalem where the temple was, and we see that he was sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah. Not exactly light reading, you know, like a magazine or something. Isaiah's pretty heavy stuff, and so you have to be pretty far along in your journey, although we're going to find out he didn't know a lot about it, but you have to be pretty far along in your journey to be reading Isaiah. 
So this guy is a follower of, of God. And here's what happens. Pick it up, verse 29. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. God the Holy Spirit speaks directly to Philip and says, I told you just to go down the road. Now I'm saying go by that chariot and just stay there. Isn't that great? I, you know, sometimes I think, we, oh God, I, I pray for a lot of you down here on Communion Sundays. And, and, and I, I can pretty much tell you what you want me to pray for you. A lot of you are praying for guidance. You're at that point in your life where you just, wow, I got all these doors. Where should I go, God? And you're expecting God to say, I want you to go to room 107 in this building. I want you to talk to a guy named Mr. Bergman. Ask him about a position he has. Ask him what the benefits are. I want you to take the position. Immediately ask for two weeks off. Da-da-da-da-da. And God says, go to the road. Okay, I'll go to the road. You go to the road. Then he says, go stand by the chariot. Okay, this is getting kind of weird now, God, but okay, I'm going by the chariot. And that's, that's what I was thinking here, is that this, this seems a little weird. Why not just say, listen, Philip, I got a job for you. I got a guy I want you to meet. I'm so excited to have you meet him. And he's a guy who's a God-fearer. He's someone who actually fears me, but he's not part of, our, of the, the, the Jewish culture. I just want you to go and you tell him about Jesus. It doesn't say it. It says, go to the road. Go to the road. Wait a while. Go to the chariot. Wait a while. God still speaks today. You need to know that. God speaks to you today. Clearly. At times, Vaguely. But he'll lead you exactly where he wants you and give you enough information for the time. God is never late, but seldom early. Seldom early. He'll give, amen to that, huh? He will not give you the whole package deal. But he will speak to you. Eight years ago, Carol and I went through an assessment. We went through four days of pretty intense psychological and other, all the kinds of uh, testing uh, in order to see if we'd be fit to be church planters. And uh, uh, ironic thing is we were already starting the church. Good timing. <clears throat> One strike against already. Doesn't know when to plan to take the assessment. <laughs> we're two months into this church planting thing at our absolute worst because it's the busiest thing we'd ever done in our entire lives. And we go to get assessed. And I'm laying, I went to, to bed, we went through the whole assessment, and then the assessors meet, and they meet until 2, 3, 4 in the morning sometimes, talking through each of the couples that are going through. There's probably eight couples that went through this particular uh, assessment center, and this one was in Wisconsin. And um, they talk through what they, how they should debrief you, what they should say. And I was stirred up at 1 o'clock in the morning with this, I just woke up. I mean, I probably went to bed at, they let you early off early that day so they can start in the early evening, and then they go late. So we were probably done at 4 or 5 or something like that. And I was stirred at 1 o'clock in the morning, and I had this burden to pray for them. It was this weirdest thing. It's like, wow, God, I, I really pray for them. I don't know what they're doing. And I talked to them later, and they said, um, I, I asked them after we went through the assessment, what time were they dealing with Carol and I? And they said, well, we hit you at 1 o'clock. And our first thought was, somebody suggested, well, they're already doing it. Let's just tell them, good job, keep going. And it was right at 1 o'clock, and someone said, no, I think we should really look at this. And so they talked about some things. And, and, and in our debriefing time, they looked at me and said, they told me that they were just going to let it go, and then they said, 
you really need to work on boundaries. We just see that's a real area of struggle in your life. And it was a word I needed to hear. It's a word I still need to hear, but it was a word that I was going 24 hours every day. There was no balance. Holy Spirit used that in my life to prepare me to hear that word. He still speaks like that today. And Philip hears this and he goes. Verse 30, Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. That was a common thing. People read aloud today. It's kind of a shame that we don't anymore. Um, he, so he's sitting there reading Isaiah the prophet and Philip asks him a question. It's a great question. He says, Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. Now, that is huge. Do you see the? He doesn't exactly know why he's even standing by that chariot yet. Holy Spirit just said, stand by the chariot. And Philip goes there and he hears this guy reading Isaiah. We're going to see in just a minute what he was, what he was reading. But he's hearing that. And he, instead of just starting to preach at the guy, instead of just starting to just say, I know exactly where you're at, what does he do? He asks him a question, and he says, do you, know what, do, you, do you understand what you're reading? In the last eight years, the way I've gotten to know many of you in this room, and people are always in my small groups, we always go through this, we share stories. We share our spiritual stories wherever we're at. If you go out with coffee with me and I don't know you, I will always ask you this question. Hey, where are you at in your spiritual journey? Where are you at in your story? Oh, tell me your story. And then I listen. Sometimes I listen for up to an hour. As you tell me your story, it's a great way to get to know people. Why? Because people want to tell you about them, but they don't want to be preached at. They don't want to just, you assume that you know everything about them. No, they want you to care. And this is what Philip does. He says, do you understand it? And this is a great answer. Verse 31, how can I? Seriously, how do you understand Isaiah? Unless someone explains it to him, and he invites, it says, so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot. Isn't that cool? Here's a stranger, and he says, hey, do you, know you know what you're reading? He says, no, I have no idea. I'm just reading it, I guess, because I got a little checkbox that I keep reading Isaiah or something. I don't know. I got to get through this passage. And he says, I want to invite you. I want to know. I want to know. You'll be amazed at how many people that you think are completely cold to the gospel when you ask them where you're at in your spiritual journey, and you ask them, where would you like to be a year from now? Are you, are you where you want to be? They'll say, no. They'll say, how, how do I go further? They'll ask you, how do I go further? You'll be amazed at where people are at. He invites them up. Verse 32, the eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, Please, or, uh, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about himself or someone else? We'll get to that in just a minute. But look at the passage he was reading. Now, the Spirit sends Philip onto the road. The Spirit sends Philip to the chariot. But there's another side to this story. That's Philip's side. The eunuch's side is this. He goes to Jerusalem. He has all these questions. There's probably persecution and things happening in, with these Christians. He has these questions the Spirit of God works in the, the eunuch's life somehow or other, and he starts reading Isaiah 53. If, if I were to give the person the Old Testament and say, I want to explain to you about the New Testament, about Christ, 
That is the chapter in the entire Bible that I would have you read. Isaiah 53. God is in complete control here. Let me read Isaiah 53. It's only, it's only 12 verses long. Let me read it to you and just, oh my goodness, this is what the eunuch was reading. Who has believed our message? To whom has the art of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. If you've seen the movie The Passion, you know what that's talking about. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his, soul, of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That is in the Old Testament. Isn't that nuts? Oh my goodness, I mean, how can you not read that and go, oh, Jesus, it's just right there. Out of the entire Old Testament, that is the passage I would have a guy read. And what's the guy reading aloud? Isaiah 53. You can just see Philip going, da, 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 keep going, keep going, da, da, da. when can I stop you? And the eunuch begs him, says, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Answer, someone else. Philip explains what's happening in verse 35. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. I love that phrase, good news. That's what the word gospel means, by the way. It means good news. What is the good news? Simply this, simply this, that you and I and everyone else who's ever lived outside of Jesus Christ have fallen short of doing everything perfect. We have sinned. And that Christ came to pay the penalty for that sin. He's the one who died to take your punishment. He's the one who died to not only just take away your punishment, to, to wash you clean of it. So when you stand before God, you stand before him clean. And all of, your, all of your junk goes upon that cross. That is the good news. If you personally respond to that and say, Jesus, I will let you take it. I will let you take my punishment I will let you be the one who gives me a pardon. He will give it to you. Simple as that. That's the good news. Let me give you an analogy for those of you who are a sports fans. I really like this one. works for me, but if it doesn't, just hang with me. 
1987, two great things happened. Twins won the World Series, and I started dating my wife. So opposite order. I started dating my wife, and, and, and <laughs> Twins won the World Series. Does anybody remember game six of that? Anybody? Yes. Game six ends with a walk-off home run by Kirby Puckett. Huh? I know many of you weren't even born in 1987, but <clears throat> 87, I mean, I fill my depends when this happens. This is awesome. This is one of those moments in sports you think, I will never live through anything as great as this. I will never live with any. He makes a great catch in the seventh or eighth inning, and in the ninth inning, he hits a home run and wins the whole thing. Walk off. Unbelievable. Jack Buck's announcement, we'll see you tomorrow night. Oh, my goodness, gives me chills down my spine just to say it. Here's what this means. Here's what this means. Kirby Puckett's up to bat, smacks that home run, wins game six. You're the bat boy, and he looks at you and says, go ahead and run the bases. That's the gift. God gets the glory. He forgave the sin. But you get the joy. You get the, you get the price. You get it yourself. Run the bases, he says. I'm going to give my righteousness, my righteous life, I'm going to give to you. And I'm going to take your dirty life and put it on me. It's an exchange. I hit the home run. You guys run the bases. That's the good news. Now, I truly believe that if a person truly understands that, and the Spirit of God is working on that. There's no way you'd reject that. It is a foolish thing to reject it. How could you possibly say, well, let me weigh this out. Let's see now. I can let Jesus pay for my sins, and then I'll take his life, and I'll be judged according to his life and how he lived. Or I can go and be before God, and he's going to look at all my sin, and I'll have to pay for that for eternity. Let's do the math. Let's, get, let's do the pluses and minuses here. There is none. There is none. There's no pluses and minuses here. And if you're going to say, oh, you know, but i got to give up a lot of stuff, talk to people who've lived life over here long enough. Talk to Elvis Presley, who died his life that he wanted to be three things. I heard Louis Palau on the radio say this yesterday. He wanted to be rich, famous, and happy. At the end of his life, just months before he killed himself, he asked him, Elvis, you're obviously rich and famous, but are you happy? He says, no, I'm as miserable as hell. There's no, there's no satisfaction over here. What are you giving up? There's, you're not giving up anything. I got excited. I lost my place. Um, <laughs> how does the guy respond? Verse 36. As they traveled along, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, I love this. Look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. What a great passage. What a great, there's water. Why shouldn't I get baptized now? You're right, man. Let's do it up. Let's have us a party right here and introduce you, introduce you to the faith. Let's have, a, let's have a baptism right here. And then the Spirit continues to scatter Philip. Verse 39 says, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again. But went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared it as as a trust and traveled about preaching the gospel, telling about the good news in all the towns, until he reached Caesarea. Now, let me close with a, with a story that has happened. It's a true story. Because you're asking, does this kind of stuff still happen today? This kind of Holy Spirit lines all these things up. 
And I, of, of course the answer is yes. I want to tell you one account by a guy by the name of Clarence Duncan. In 1985, Clarence Duncan arrived in Africa as a missionary to people who were mostly solid Muslim, but it was a tribe, and they were, they, it, was, it was mixed with a lot of other uh, animism and a lot of other religions. These people were called the Yao people, and they lived mostly in the Tanzania, Mozambique, and Malawi area. He met the chief and the elders of this community, and they asked him his name, and he said, his name was Clarence Duncan, but he said, Mr. Clarence. When he said that, they all kind of looked at each other for a second and looked back at him and said, why are you here? And Clarence simply said, I want to tell your people about Isa al-Mahisi, which is Jesus the Messiah. A couple of months later is when the chief decided he could trust this guy. He says, do you know why we allowed you to say to stay? And the guy said, well, I never really thought about it. And the guy says, 21 years ago, a very old Yao man came to our village and, and called for a meeting as you did. When we asked him his name, the Yao man said, Mr. Clarence, which isn't an African name at all. When we asked him why he came, he said, I want to tell your people about Isa al-Mahisi. These were your very words. 21 years ago, Mr. Clarence led four of our villagers to follow Jesus. So we ran them out of the village and we killed Mr. Clarence. The reason we allowed you to stay was we were afraid. This guy's back. <laughs> that was in 1985. In 1989, in, on a January morning, 24 of these elders approached Clarence Duncan's house. <laughs> oh, nice. They changed their mind. After a meal, the leader sat down in the middle of him and they came to ask questions about Christianity. They, he said, fine, but I want to show you that everything I'm going to show you is from the Bible. So I'm only going to read you Bible passages so you know that I'm not making any of this up. Any of this up. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he gave them each a Bible in their language that they could read along with them. First question is, he says, why do you Christians say that there are three gods? And he said, oh, no, no, we don't say the three gods. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 4, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, and he explained that Jesus himself said that same thing in Mark 12, 29. He tried to explain to them the concept of the Trinity. The questioning went on until 5 in the afternoon. When all of them had left, the, the leader stayed, Abu is his name, he stayed and he asked if he could see him in one week. When they met later that week, um, Clarence asked him why he wanted to stay, if he had any more questions. He says, no. He says, it's, it was because, uh, excuse me, he asked him why they came the first time, and, and uh, Abu said, no, it was because the Christian church here is growing, and we decided we were going to do something about it. In fact, we were going to kill you. We had consulted for three days. We prepared our magic. He says, you are to be struck dumb when we ask questions, then fall on the ground paralyzed, and then die. But when you kept talking and even stood up and moved around, we knew you had a stronger spirit in you. Then the leader said, I want to become a Christian. And then he told this story. He says, when I was a teenager, in our village, we were not Muslim people and we were not Christian. We were Achuan people with our own religion. Behind our village was a hill where I would go often to pray. One day I was on that hill praying. Suddenly all around me was a blinding light. Out of this light, I saw a big hand coming toward me holding an open book. 
I looked at the book and saw writing on the page. A voice told me to read. I protested that I could not read, never having been to school. The voice again told me to read, so I did. And suddenly the book and the hand disappeared. I ran back to my village and all the people were looking for me, thinking I had died on that hill. They asked about a fire that they had seen up there. When I told them the story, they laughed at me, saying, you can't read. Someone got a book and I began to read. Then people came from all around to find out more about what was happening and ask questions. The Muslim authorities found out about me and I was trained in the ways of Islam. Soon all, uh, soon all our village became Muslim. For 15 years, I was, a, I was the greatest debater against Christians. And then he said, you remember when I asked you the first questions about why you believe in three gods? Your answer was Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. He says, that was the same passage that the voice on the mountain showed me. At that moment, I knew that the God you were talking about was the true God. He says, well, you kept asking me questions all day. He says, well, that's because I want the other Muslim leaders to know what Christians believe, and I wanted them to, to hear it from you. <clears throat> the whole day I pretended unbelief so that I could ask more questions. Now I want to become a Christian. This happens now. It doesn't just happen in faraway places. This happens with people you know who on the outside seem like they're a million miles away from Christianity. You scratch that surface a little bit, you'll find out that God is doing a work in their life. They might have read Isaiah 53. Or maybe they just watched a movie. Or who knows what? God is working in people's lives. You don't know exactly what it is. What's the Spirit of God asking you to do this morning? Maybe you feel a bit like the eunuch. Maybe you believe to some extent, but you've not believed in the whole story. You, 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 maybe even this morning is the first time you knew that Jesus Christ died for your sins. You just thought it was kind of a neat little story, the whole thing. But there it is. And what's, he, what's he asking you to do? He's asking you this morning to believe. Just like we read in the beginning of the worship. John chapter 20. These things are written so that you may believe. Maybe you're ready to be baptized. And publicly declare your faith through baptism. We'll have a baptism this fall. If that's something you'd like to do at Hope, we'll be happy to do that. You might be like Philip. God might be asking you to do something and it might seem a little bit nutty. Go stand by that chariot. <laughs> go, to that, go, to that, uh, go, go to that road. I don't know what, but you know. I no longer dismiss when nutty things come into my, well, some of them, but there's some that come, when people come to my mind, I say, God, you're asking, you must be asking me to pray for these people or something, and I just kind of wait and listen to see. Don't just dismiss that. Maybe God is asking you to do something I encourage you this morning, even before you leave, make it up in your mind that you will do it. Let's pray together. God, I love how when the Spirit of God told Philip to go and stand by that chariot, it says that Philip ran, ran over to it. God, would we have that kind of heart? So when you tell us to do something, we'd run. We say, jump, God. We want to say, how high? Because we know there's joy in following you. Look at what Philip got to experience. He got to experience leading this man to a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for people in this room who right now, for the first time in their lives, maybe are understanding it's all clicking. And for the first time, they're saying, Lord, I want to, I want to trust you today. Just like the Ethiopian eunuch, even though we don't have water right here right now, but they say, today, I want to make a 
proclamation of faith right here. Christ, right now, I want you to come into my life and change me, and I want to be a follower of you. I want to turn from my ways and turn towards you. You could do that, God, in people's life, even as I'm speaking. You could turn hearts. Lord, I pray for those of us who, through this message or through the worship or just through being here, you've spoken to us and you've made it clear that there's something you want us to do. God, would we be like Philip and would we run to go and do it? It's only going to happen, God, when we see, have two things. One is courage over our fear. And the second thing, Lord, is a, is a doggedness that what you want us to do will always bring us the greatest joy, even if it's painful at the time. So, Lord, help us not to get robbed of joy of following you. Give us that courage. Speak to us, Spirit, even as we sing these last songs and what you'd have us to do. We pray in Christ's name.